Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My name is Mel Fulton. You are dialed to Triple R, and it is my great pleasure to introduce to you today's guest on Literati Glitterati, Sarah Saleh. Sarah is a writer, a poet, a human rights lawyer, and the daughter of Palestinian, Lebanese, and Egyptian migrants. She is the co editor of the 2019 anthology Arab Australian Other Stories on Race and Identity. And this year, she has released not one, but two books a novel called Songs for the Dead and the Living and a poetry collection called The Flirtation of Girls, Gazar El Banat. Welcome to the show, Sarah. We are absolutely delighted to have you. Thank you so much, Mel. It's such an honor and a privilege to be here chatting to you today. Um, congratulations are in order, enormous ones. Tonight you're going to be launching in Sydney your debut poetry collection. Um, I know that it is an absolutely um, enormous time in the world and we've been talking off air about the importance of of holding many things in your mind at at a time at the moment and um, I'd just like to thank you for this incredible collection that has really nourished me and energized me and um, and you know say thank you very much for putting it out into the world. Thank you Mel it feels like uh, one of those things where I am as you say trying to uh, acknowledge and be, you know, acknowledge the state of the world and be kind to myself, um, knowing that, uh, a lot of us are feeling quite depleted, quite traumatized, uh, quite, you know, um, in, I guess, in distress, uh, with everything. Um, but also, uh, wanting to honor this collection, the art, the poetry, particularly because, you know, it, it, it came together. A lot of people were involved in its coming together. And I really want to be able to honor that work as well, not just my own writing, but the fact that, uh, it takes, as they say, a village to, to have this collection, to have this book out there in the world. Um, so I, I thought, you know what, it, it is worth, uh, taking a moment to come together and, you know, some sort of, fleeting joy or fleeting celebration and not allow ourselves to be robbed of that in the current context um, and and use that as a as a pause or reset as you say to nourish and, and to be able to have the resolve to keep going on in the world beyond the art and beyond the poetry. Yeah fantastic and now I mean you've not only written this one book of poetry you've also had your debut novel published this year it's been an enormous year for you and I guess I wanted to start by by asking about um I mean how how that happened how did you produce so much how did you do it don't try that at home kids it's it's yeah definitely (laughs) a very it was a it was a challenge and um I'm not one to shy away from those but uh, if if I can be completely honest with you, frank with you about um, how this came to be, I think it was never my intention. Certainly, I don't think it was the publisher's ideal to have these um, at the same time, uh, in a sense, uh, because even though they are different works and sort of 
uh, may traverse sort of similar themes, but do it in obviously very different ways. I think uh, it's also about making sure that I have the energy and the space to give each of those, you know, collections and each of those works their rights. Um, so I, I do think that perhaps it wasn't the most ideal situation, but the context in which it happened is that I uh, I probably should take full, uh, full responsibility for the fact that I just couldn't meet deadlines at points. It was incredibly hard. And I want to say that um, whilst also acknowledging or taking a step back and basically, I think, flagging the fact that when publishers take on writers, particularly writers of colour and writers who come from marginalised backgrounds, and that also includes First Nations writers, and I don't wish to speak on their behalf, but just to sort of flag that as, as a, um, a learning, a lesson. Um, I think publishers also understand that when they do that, it has to be done in a particular way with a lot of care um, to each, you know, person's context. And when I was writing particularly Songs for the Dead and the Living, there was a lot going on in the Palestinian movement for justice. And broadly speaking, my role uh, in that, uh, and that includes um, Sheikh Jarrah during 2021 in May 2021. Um, and it also includes the big uh, Boycott Sydney Festival campaign, again, which I, and along with many other artists, uh, played a big role in. And so I think I was very lucky and privileged to have a publisher that allowed me the space to do these things that are incredibly important to me and my community, um, whilst also, you know, juggling that and managing the art and trying to, at my, you know, uh, very best, um, produce good art, take the time to do that, but also meet, you know, the deadline without giving into that, you know, resisting that churn and that conveyor belt of just like producing and production and extraction um, with, without the kind of the care and compassion that I was re- referring to earlier. I think that there's a very long-held stereotype of the writer existing uh in a lonely space at their desk, uh, sort of knuckling down and getting the work done and and reading your work and engaging with your work because it is uh, living and breathing and dynamic and rolling out every day um, really does a lot to tear that idea apart. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of, of community and how it does sort of energise and inform your writing practice? Completely. I think that is an exactly right. An excellent point. And I always joke about how people often think that, you know, the stereotype of me, you know, or of of writers in general is that, you know, I'm sitting under a tree with like the wind blowing through my hijab or, you know, uh, one's hair and, and that, you know, I'm, I've just have all the time in the world to, to write. And I wish that were the case. And obviously I think we aspire to write, uh, at least I aspire to write in a way that is, noble and beautiful putting these things out there in the world but I don't exist in a vacuum unfortunately and I will always um, embody the world that I live in which means that a lot of my art uh, whilst not solely or uh, concerned with for example uh, Palestine since that's you know a a big thing at the moment um, and and occupying a lot of my if not my entire you know headspace um, my writing isn't solely about Palestine, but certainly primarily that is one of the things sort of haunting at least the novel and the collection trailing through the entire um, works. So I think um, it's it's important to acknowledge that uh, we do exist and uh, sort of um, embody the worlds we inhabit and that will always come out in our art. And at the same time, I don't think writing is a necessarily... uh, solely like solitary act 
So whilst, you know, there is no tree and there's no wind through my hijab, I'm obviously always trying to find moments. Um, I work full time like many, because again, I can't afford to write, you know, um, sustain myself through that. I work full time. I have other responsibilities. I have community, um, as I said, and I think as an artist on stolen land, there's also something to say for our responsibilities on that front. So all of this is to say there's a lot going on, right? And it can be hard to juggle. Um, and uh, I think ultimately, um, for me, being able to do all that is because I don't think writing is a solitary act necessarily, but one that is interdependent. So the before, what happens after, what happens during, I mean, even the act of publishing, um, putting aside the kind of commercial questions and demands that comes with editors and, and multiple, you know, cult, for example, uh, cultural readers and advisors and, uh, all, you know, all of this amalgam of, um, people coming together to make sure that this is the best work uh, that one can put out there in the world. But I think having said all of that, and I'll end on this, uh, the support that one um, will, that I specifically have relied on to be able to do uh, all of this is certainly the most critical. So writing is interdependent, having community support and people who understand and, you know, create spaces where you are able to bring your whole self. That is such a, such a critical part of the art that I'm producing. Absolutely. Especially when I think, I mean, arguably the role of all art and the role of writing is to remind us of our collective humanity. (laughs) And so it is kind of impossible to do that without engaging in the mess of life and of the world. Um, so thank you so much for reflecting on that. And I'd just like to say that in the spirit of everything that we've just talked about, we will be discussing the novel. We'll also be discussing the poetry collection. You are going to treat us to a reading at the end of, of this interview, uh, you know, at around 10 to 1 or something like that. And we will move kind of, you know, freely between them and in an organic sort of way so thank you for for bearing with it uh, bearing with us people who are listening at home um i would like to ask you just to kick things off about the title of the novel it's called songs for the dead and the living it is a book about a young woman named jamila um, and her family jamila is an undocumented palestinian refugee she's living with her beautiful family, her many, her quite chaotic kind of loving family on the outskirts of Beirut um, at the beginning of the book and then conflict breaks out and they have to flee. Can you tell us about the significance of the title and how it, how it sort of speaks to Jamila's experience? So the Songs for the Dead and the Living is actually inspired by a poetry line um, written by Mahmoud Darwish, seminal Palestinian poet whose work lives on, you know, I think uh, to this day and is as relevant as ever. And certainly, you know, one of my biggest poetry influences, but not not the only one. And for me, what, you know, Songs for the Dead and the Living embody is the fact that uh, art and songs and, you know, culture and story are the things that uh, bind us and connect us beyond um, living and beyond beyond our deaths. They, they live on even after we are gone. And I think that's so important, particularly for people in a community who have been 
you know, on the, on the receiving end of, of an entity that is trying to, you know, a colonial entity that is not only trying to, uh, you know, uh, brutalize our, our lands and our homes and our bodies, but also our identity and our memory. And so when you're in the face of this sort of constant erasure, I think that become, it even, it becomes even more important to ensure that your, um, you know, your cultural heritage is preserved and is passed on and isn't um, colonized and rewritten and erased and silenced, right? So for me, I think that that's one of the biggest things uh, in terms of the title that it is um, so important for us to be able to have our songs and our art and have that live on through us even after we pass. And, and it's also one of the things when you are a migrant and you don't have a lot of material uh inheritance sort of to, to you know to take with you when you are exiled exile upon exile and you're moving around and you find yourself um from place to place it's really hard to have material things but what i say is our heirloom art art is our heirloom art is our heritage art is our inheritance uh so that for me is is speaks to speaks to the title and if i can say one last thing there's a line in this that i think really kind of points to that um it's it's on the bottom of page 36 and uh it goes stories have a way of bringing back the dead stories are the dead and the living sharing bread and salt together so beautiful and i think it speaks entirely to how we opened this conversation the idea that the the writer never exists in isolation that we're always in conversation with the people who have come before and that the the things that we make and the things that we create um are a gift to the next to the next generation that's something that we can bring with us and certainly that's part of jamila's um experience I think that when uh, she's you know she's she's coming of age she's sort of becoming a woman while uh, you know in the face of this incredible sort of violence and uncertainty um, and through finding in Jamila's case uh, photography you know um, and other books and other writers and things and connecting with people who own these businesses who sort of look out for her she's able to um to to process things in a way or to or to leave a mark or to make sense of things definitely i think you know you mentioned jamila being an undocumented palestinian refugee and the context is you know she's growing up in this large sort of loving family as you said who are forced for a second time to flee to to be in exile um from this time from their you know cute little house above a paint shop in beirut um they're exiled to egypt because of the lebanese civil war and that that process of being dislocated and dispossessed again is obviously quite uh, uh, a jarring thing for a young person, a teenager who has dreams and wants to live their life and figure themselves out and have friends and have crushes and do do the things that teenagers do, right? Um, uh, whilst also so living, you know, living with some sort of like uh, freedom. And at the same time, also hanging on to family and relationships, as you say, and and um, uh, that sort of. Uh, 
what symbolizes security and safety in a time where they are constantly uncertain. So I think that is one of the biggest things that Jamila has to sort of um, face and grow into. That's the coming of age, kind of one of the one of the dilemmas. And for me, you mentioned the camera and art and relationships as uh, her salve, her guide, perhaps as she kind of comes into her own. But it's also, you know, the deep roots at the heart of the novel for me are also the loving um you know, loving and complex matriarchal relationships in, in Jamila's kind of family. So the dynamics of the five women at the center of the story, the, the mother, the grandmother, the cousin, you know, this, it's a whole village, um, with, with, I, I say shades of kind of Bennett and March sisters, mm-hmm. um, the highlight. And, you know, I, I wrote that because I, I, I wrote this novel and I, I wrote these relationships because I'm especially, my writing has, has been interest, you know, especially concerned with, um, the way Arab women speak back to the patriarchy and the, and the, the violence of the patriarchy, the violence of borders, even the violence of partners, which is a universal thing and how, um, the world, uh, certain, you know, factors in the world, when they make us invisible and they ignore us, we create our own spaces of subversion and softness and strength through the sisterhood, you know, that Jamila gets to have and explore. And I wanted to, I wanted to explore that and, you know, kind of follow the thread of what, what happens, what do they give up each time, but what do they also gain and where do they find love and in whom and how, uh, because ultimately, I think, uh, given that we've already established that my art is inherently political, um, I say political, but I also just think it's, you know, you, it's very difficult to, that, that comes with, a, that is loaded and comes with baggage, but it's very difficult to, again, remove yourself from a burning world, as James Baldwin um, says. So my art is that, and so I will always create works that kind of embody uh, the multiplicity of identities. And I think, I, and I hope that that's what I've done here, you know, because um, at the end of the day, this will have its, its, you, these complexities will have their own kind of double bind for Arab Muslim migrant women, you know, especially when you're talking about, for example, misogyny, and you know, it's a risk, and you don't want to feed into the harmful stereotypes. But ultimately, one, I accept that if people are going to come to my work with this sort of existing view, then I'm, you know, this work isn't, I'm not trying to convince anyone of that. I'm not going to use it to speak to that gaze. You know, my book isn't going to be the thing that change it, changes that because I don't want to compromise the writing. I want to be able to allow for the full humanity of these characters and think about my responsibilities as a writer trying to bring in all these different threads that, you know, we, we've talked about. So the best thing I can do is, is, you know, write subjective truths and um not think about being necessarily a positive story or a harmful one just an honest one i'm really interested in that idea of um what you've called subjective truth and that idea of of honesty and truth and of capturing something holistically um and and i'm I'm curious to ask you about your decision uh to write a fictional novel you know because it has occurred to me over the course of this conversation that 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 may indeed be the best way to capture the um the full picture of the human experience but i am curious like uh 
what can this form do that perhaps an essay collection may not be able to do? Why, why was the novel the, the version of truth for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, uh, I think, interesting question and it forces me to also sort of reflect because a lot of the times as an artist, I'm doing things in a way that is intuitive or at least uh, out of interest. You know, I want to I wanted to write a novel because I want to write a novel. Why not? You know, it's a fun thing. I, I have a sadistic idea of what fun is. Um, but that is it goes back to absolutely the fundamental inherent question of intention. So. I have, again, like artists, uh, many artists, uh, I have a lot of interests. I have a lot of things that I want to accomplish and do simply because I enjoy it and I love it and I can't see myself, you know, doing any sort of other thing. Um, I'm multidisciplinary and enjoy traversing different genres, uh, as uh, is obviously clear between my poetry and my novel. Um, but why was this the novel? It actually started out as a short story. So, uh, I wrote this short story. I was commissioned by Sweatshop to write it for a, a collection called Racism, which came out a couple of years ago. And initially, um, this story was actually meant to be a sort of, uh, funnily enough, uh, kind of a dystopic uh, sci-fi uh, f- f- fiction and it was meant to be set in like in a detention center and set around um, you know uh, refugees who happen to be Muslim and who are detained and again this is, it's all set in the future and this was something I was thinking about a lot because of my work. I work in the racial justice space and have been an advocate for uh, refugee rights for a very long time, um, especially considering, like Jamila, I share geographies and intersections uh, with her. So like Jamila, my mom is uh, grew up as an undocumented uh, refugee in Palestine. So, sorry, in Lebanon, Palestinian refugee in Lebanon. So, um noting all of that, it has been an area of interest for me. And so that's what I started out writing. And then I sort of, uh, it ended up turning into this, this short story. Uh, and it started out with the scene where they escape, uh, Beit Samra, uh, on the outskirts of Beirut, the night they escape to Egypt. That's, that was the starting chapter. And the reason that came about, um, long story short is because I was in a point Uh, at a point in my life where I was sort of interested in my origin story, you can call it that. Mm. Um, So a lot to my mom and kind of trying to figure out um, what, you know, when you get to a point in your life, when you're, you're in a relationship, for example, and that is a very testing, trying thing and all your baggage is coming out. You're wondering like, damn, I'm, I have a lot of flaws. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm more flawed than I realized. Okay. What is the root of this as an artist and a storyteller and a writer? I'm always interested in the complexity and the unpacking of these things, because I think that it, you know, we're all, I I don't think, I don't believe in the binary of like, I'm a good person or a bad person. I'm very capable of all these things and we exist on this spectrum. So what is the origin? What is the root of this flaw? And, and following that ended up finding myself interrogating my parents whom I blame for all my flaws. No, I'm joking. I don't. Um, (laughs) The famous poem, poem, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. Yeah. (laughs) They don't mean to, but they do. Yeah. um and 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 really like interrogating my relationship with them and so uh, that ended up being what kind of inspired um because the novel is inspired by my mom's sort of very broadly inspired by my mom's migration story to australia so when i was interrogating all these things i landed on 
you know, Jamila and Jamila's escape that e- that night, that fateful night um, from Lebanon to Egypt, it came to me. I wrote it as a short story and that's, I thought that's all it was going to be. Um, but the characters kept coming to me. I, you know, they, they want, I wanted to know how, where would the, where they would end up, what would happen to them and how um, they would get out of the situation that they were in, if at all. And I think I had to, before I embarked on the novel, I had to ask myself, is this the best way to do this? Is this, what is the message here? Is this the best medium? Um, Jamila and the family keep coming to me. Do, if I'm going to do this, I really need to honor that. Is this, is this the right way? And so, or is this the way for me? And also as an artist, do I, can you know, is this something that I'm interested in and can I set out to do it in the best way possible? Yeah, wow, that's a fantastic answer. Um, Sarah, you just mentioned that this uh, novel was originally a short story commissioned by Sweatshop, and I just wanted to encourage people who are listening to please check out Sweatshop. Sweatshop are based um, out of Western Sydney. They're a fantastic literary movement, um, lots and lots of exciting writers and really wonderful activism happening there. So please do please do look them up, follow, follow some of those great writers. Um, Sarah, I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we've just been talking about um, the value of fiction in these times and for storytelling and for, you know, sharing the truth. Um, I noticed when looking at uh, your poetry collection, there's a fantastic quote on the back of the book from Janine Lean, uh, the wonderful First Nations uh, novelist, Um, and she describes your work almost as, um, your poetic work as almost non-fictional you know autobiographical it feels like you're reporting from the front line of your experience the poems are very immediate Um, a lot of them are dedicated or in response to other writers and thinkers they feel like they're conversational they feel like they're sort of alive in a dialogue with other people and um, I wanted to talk to you about the process of writing the poetry collection you know as opposed to the novel yeah, I mean, we, we you you did ask me, and I think I went on my side story, but forgot to actually answer the question of why why fiction. And I and and I again, I did you know interrogate that and mm. and return to my question of why. And I it was simply because I thought that story needed a long form um, novel. That was the best way that I could honor Jamila and and that whole. Um, you know, that whole scene to finish it out. Whereas in this collection of poetry, you know, I've been writing poetry for a very long time. And for me, uh, I think, um, I have always, uh, I have always seen it as, uh, a, a sort of a series of collective generosities, so to speak. And I feel phrase. like, they're, yeah, I, I they're reflective of, um, thank you. They're reflective of, uh, a constant kind of ebb and flow, a constant expansion, giving and receiving of things that are happening in, in my life. And so I, I often even, you know, I, I'd say, I think I said this in the acknowledgements that this is inspired by coffee, you know, conversations around the kitchen table and the artwork sort of speaks to that as well, the front cover. Um, so I think for me, it's just one, one uh, medium, one form, or, you know, uh, one genre with many forms uh, of being able to speak to these issues that we have been talking about, be it uh, colonial violence or uh, the lives of women and how we kind of respond to things, but also how we transcend 
all of that and how we live our lives in messy, complicated, small, mediocre, mundane ways as well. Um, I'd like to ask you uh, about... I think it's a question about yearning, really, and about um, about uh, about the the migrant experience, the refugee experience, and the process of sort of uh, imagining a real place and and pining for it um, and uh, and reading about it and and wanting to understand it and that process of knowing a place existing on a number of different different levels. Could you, could you speak to that for us? I love that question. And I think for me, place is certainly one of the biggest, uh, I actually say, uh, to me, place is a, is almost a character in and of itself, the, in the novel actually. And in this collection, uh, I think there's, because it, we're asking about what it means to be dislocated. It's not just being dislocated from self, it's being dislocated from place and what that means, our relationship with that and how for a lot of migrants, it is a lot of it is vicarious. You know, we're hearing about these places, we're inheriting memories sometimes and stories and sometimes they are very romanticized and one must sort of resist that, you know, the, the, the glorification of our homelands, but at the same time, understanding that, um, you know, we are connected. I'm connected to Palestine. I'm connected to the land. I'm connected to these places and exploring that relationship, which is fraught and fragmented, but also so healing for so many of us. Um, so I think for me, place is again, uh, a, a central character, uh, the cities that I'm from, uh, I, I really wanted to be able to explore explore and honor in the poems and in in the novel as well uh because uh, for me i think uh, yeah uh, they, they are they're almost it, my experience with them is, is obviously going to be very different to a lot of people's experiences with them and uh, even though uh they the past lebanon's past palestine's past and present um might have faded from people's memories from the world's memory for me it actually still impacts me i'm tied to it as i said to this day and i really um wanted to be able to uh, have you know have the space in these books to dig deeper into the histories into the relationships um that are reciprocal uh, symbiotic and as i said divided and dynamic and, and dig in a way that i hadn't done before and into the physicality of the places as well. I think, you know, a, a lot of the stories that are coming out of Gaza at the moment, um, you know, I, I mean, uh, people are people are mourning so much, but there's certainly a degree of, um, I think, deep sadness that uh, the, the, the version of, Ga- of Gaza that is being broadcast to the world is, is of this decimated place, you know, um, when so much of uh, people's, you know, this is where people, this is where people live, this is where people thrive, this is where people fall in love, it's where they make art, it's where they come of age, it's where all their memories are kept. And the, and the vision that we're getting, that, that we're being shared is this, is this awful, you know, this awful decimated place. Yes, and I think that part of why I tell these stories and um, the black the back blurb uh, set, you know uses the word polychromatic lives of girls and women, and I think that's exactly right because I'm very 
I tire of the depictions that reduce us to suffering and to, again, to trauma, even though it's valid, but when, when it's only that side, when it's only constant suffering, when we constantly have to, um, uh, to quote poet Hala Alian, uh, audition for uh, empathy, but also for humanity, to audition for any semblance of humanity as if we're not full, messy, complex beings already, that is exhausting. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I tried to write to, the multiplicity of these experiences in all the, you know, the full spectrum uh, of these characters and of, you know, and, and of the poems as well. Uh, I would, you know, I'd like to say something to to that as well in terms of the, the poetry and the poems themselves, because uh, to, to go back to what Janine Lane, uh, Lane said, um, my one of my uh, dear poetry friends, Palestinian poet uh, Najwan Darwish, actually says that poetry is the daughter of history. And I've always, you know, uh, asked myself this question around whether poets, you know, really are the better historians and the better archaeologists. And I've been thinking a lot about that now, given everything. What purpose i'm i'm here i'm i'm not in palestine i'm not in the front lines i'm here i'm an artist and i wear multiple hijabs but i i write and what does that serve in the moment you know but to excavate truth and to excavate language that is being erased that is being distorted as we said that's being rewritten um by certain powers that be and i think that artists have a function not to ignore that but to um uh, sort of give, you know, the shapeless things a shape and to bear witness and to name the things that need to be named and also articulate alternative visions and futurities. Because again, I'm here, I'm quote unquote safe. So I can, do have the responsibility to envision, envision, envision the future and provide that and work with others so that we know what we're fighting for, not just constantly what we are fighting against and trying to destroy and dismantle, but actually also um, build. And look, I don't want to romanticize Palestine or Palestinians, but I do think that it's it's you know it's uh, important to point out that it's absurd to think that poetry or art and my art, let alone my art, is going to end any of this or going to serve of any sort of material purpose. I think only people can do that. But we can move people into action. You know, you enter a poem and you're transformed. You learn something. The poem is an archive of personal uh, political hauntings and history. And it's an, it's an invitation for people to enter that and reimagine. And so for me, imagination and writing is a way to fight and to empower and gain power. Absolutely. I think imagination and um, the ability to to play and to be delighted, um, something that I really enjoyed in the collection, in the poetry collection, is uh, in your acknowledgements you say uh, that the Arabic word for, for poetry is in fact the same word as it is for house and that absolutely delighted me the the kind of symbolism in that and the idea that we could that we can use these words to to build something that makes us safe and secure and where we can share memories um together is a is a really it's a wonderful thing and a spiriting thing i think I really love that you brought that back to to Bates. Yes, so as much as we are about dismantling language and existing in between it and beyond the rules that often and the language that often doesn't apply to us and doesn't include us as as say bilingual poets as well, I think it's so important to be able to to reconstruct and take that and build uh alt, you know alternatives 
I suppose I wanted to talk to you about, before we got there, um, if you could share with us, and you, you already have throughout the conversation, um, a couple of, of the writers who have inspired you, um, something that I've been hearing a lot, you know, lately, as people are, people are really hungry for uh, Palestinian stories, to read Palestinian writers, to read Palestinian poets and, and musicians especially, and uh, I was hoping that you might be able to, to, to point some of our listeners in, in the right direction. Of course, there are so many incredible uh, Palestinian authors and writers who are, um, you know, uh, definitely being, and I'm really grateful that their stories are being amplified, their voices are being amplified at the moment, though, obviously, um, you know, uh, sad about why, or, you know, it's it's not a, it's not a great reason, but I I am um, heartened to see the interest um, in Palestinian authors and voices. And there are many you can check out here in so-called Australia. So you have authors like, um, Rhonda, Dr. Rhonda Abdel-Fattah, uh, who has released a slate of children's novels, but also, um, young, uh, adult fiction. Uh, you have, uh, Amal Awad, who's a Palestinian author, and I think just released a book as well. Uh, I think her book came out at the same time as mine. It's mm. called um, Bittersweet, uh, I believe, and, and definitely, uh, you know, some fiction that you should check out. Uh, for poetry, you have uh, poets like uh, Hasib Hodani, uh, who is a Narm local, I believe, and, mm-hmm. and writes incredible poetry and their collection is coming out soon. And so definitely look out for that. And globally, in addition to the greats like Mahmoud Darwish, as I've mentioned before, and reading, you know, seminal works by Edward Said, uh, that, that would be nonfiction, um, but still incredibly, you know, important uh, for the times that we're in. I would also suggest authors like Isabel Hamad, mm-hmm. um, who just released uh, Enter Ghost. I absolutely love that book. Um, it's sort of like a reimagining of Hamlet and a group of people are coming together to uh, stage a play in the West Bank. And, you know, obviously what that looks like for them in, in the context of, of uh, the West Bank and what's going on. Uh, you've got uh, Suzanne Abulhawa against the Loveless wor- World and Hala Alian, who's uh, also an incredible poet and author. And I was very lucky enough to have Hala uh, Eliane write the blurb for my collection as yes. well. Yes, yes, and that leads us leads us, I think, beautifully into into a reading from you uh, this afternoon, Sarah. What what poems have you selected for us? Thanks, Mel. I, I just want to say very quickly yeah. that there are readings. So if people missed out on the names or maybe didn't catch them or weren't familiar, um, they, you, there are plenty of reading lists out there that mm. certainly. Include them and also on my um, socials as well. Feel free to check them out if that's at all um, useful. Uh, I would love to read. Uh, how many? How much time do I have? How many poems? Oh, uh, you've got. I mean, we've got Four. nine minutes, <laughs> so you can read. You can read as many as you oh. like in that time. And and listeners, I will make sure uh, that those writers uh, that Sarah was talking about are also available. You'll be able to listen back via on demand or on the podcast, and and I'll make sure that they're available um, in the in the blurb describing the podcast as well. So you've got them there. Thank you so much, Mel. I really appreciate that. I want to read. I want to start by reading um, this this piece, which actually is called "The Year That Changed Everything," and was meant to be written about the year 1948, which is um, the year that perhaps many um, might not be aware was uh, was the year of the Nakba, or what Palestinians call the Nakba, the 
catastrophe, the disp- the year that we um, Palestinians were dispossessed from their homelands and uh, 750,000 people were exiled and many more killed. And it's important to also note that for Palestinians, the Nakba, this catastrophe never ended. It's ongoing today. Which brings me to this poem, even though I wrote it about 1948, I was rereading it a couple of days ago um, for another uh, event and, and thought to myself, I could have easily written this about Gaza right now. So I would like to share this poem. And I think it indicates, you know, the fact that what is happening isn't, uh, isn't a, a recent kind of uh, escalation or something that has taken place overnight, but has been going on for 75 plus years and, you know, do- doesn't exist in in isolation or in vacuum, but is something that Palestinians have been writing about and speaking about and and struggling um, against for a very long time. Absolutely. And as you say in the collection, you know, every Palestinian has a Nakba story, like everybody does. This is not exactly, it does not exist in isolation. 1948 is crooked. Is chasm of the century is promised land milk and honey, find fruit in its foraging, a frenzy of dust storms, sift through its sands, view its shimmering silken through your windscreen. 1948 is the Mediterranean and its charred sky, is the queerest city on this planet, is music full blast, dizzying fun park ride, is ancient, ancient, don't you want to be free in this future utopia? Parade down the streets, swaddled in your brightest rainbows. 1948 is stockpile of prickly pears and the poisonous eucalypts pleated across the vistas. And we, invasive species, a sting of wind passing in their flourishing, an exit wound stitched up expertly. No outcry for that, no outcry still. The land will come for you. I think it already has. Didn't they mention there are bounties and there is bounty and we have already paid dearly. You stayed to be citizen, to be bronzed, baby. Didn't they tell you this is your God-given right, your inheritance? I should know there is never a good time to lose a country. Thank you, Sarah. The next poem I'll read. Uh, I'm going to read this because I think it resonated with you earlier, Mel. So I thought it might be nice to for a change yeah. of pace. Yeah, sure. It's called Woman Crying Uncontrollably in the Next Stall Response. And this is actually a response to Kim Adonisio's poem, uh, Woman Crying Uncontrollably in the Stall. Uh, so I thought I really loved that poem and I wanted to be, as you say, in conversation with Kim and kind of respond to that in my in my own way, in my in my work. So again, woman crying uncontrollably in the next doll responds. I have woken in my dress half off, zip broken at 4 a.m., have closed my legs to someone I loved. They left and opened them to someone I didn't 
thrashed restless against 600 thread counts soft in the glow of my mobile phone, the only light I saw for days cried miserable by the sea, confetti of condoms and spliffs chafing my ankles, one week's earnings got me a breakup haircut, bangs that didn't suit my round face spacked away from the mirror, plotted all the ways I could kill him with my friends forensic scientists and lawyers so we would get away with it have bled into the back seat never used a tampon because haram because teen pregnancy have skinny dipped in a rock pool under the sky's drainage sung into a hairbrush the pedestal fan and auto-tune hiked up a cliff to spot the crescent moon feasted on the stars ripped out the stitches with my bare hands because why not i thought nothing and no one can I hear you. Thank you for seeing me. I want to believe you when you say joy is coming. Wow. All right. And we, oh, thank you. We've got one more. Sure. Okay. Maybe this one. Yeah. I'm, I'm vibing with this one. Okay. I was very privileged to have this piece actually uh, get, very recently shortlisted was shortlisted for the university of canberra's vice chancellor poetry prize uh, but i've been thinking about it a lot um so i'd like to share it as my last offering today and thank you again everyone for for listening and for your support thank you sarah all the places my father lost his faith my father lost his faith at the stale fringes of the brown carpet in the apartment at his 15-hour shifts, but always made it to bedtime, tended to us with his tales of Sinbad the Adventurer. My father lost his faith at Camp David, at the cold peace at Abdel Nasser's pan-Arabism eroding. My father lost his faith at my grandfather's goodbye, begging us to go somewhere safer. My father lost his faith during delayed takeoff. He missed my grandfather's death by an hour. My father lost his faith in a country of men. He cried with the love reserved for some when all he had were daughters. My father lost his faith at the cafe, longing for the kind of cushetty black tea that bathes each rib. My father lost his faith at his accent scratching its way out of his multilingual throat at Eftops at Borgor, at hundred percent, at the rejection letters that came in the dozens, at his degree, he pulled out like a birthmark, a covenant, an eleventh finger, all the generations of men before him in the folds of that paper. My father lost his faith at my 30th birthday dinner, red velvet and his leukemia diagnosis delivered that day at the hospital where the nurse kept missing the vein, his arteries recoiling with each tap. My father lost his faith at the windowless rooms, resplendent rows of pokies calling, a culling of fathers everywhere. My father lost his faith when we lost the house, an immigrant's downfall. At last night in it, my father cried, his cries little, lonely fires they cling to me like a legacy i should have cut him in half 
sea, what's eating at his rind, what parting of seas sutured him together, his want for a life of more. I think I was terrified of seeing him then. It would have been my first lesson in loving something that stopped knowing how to love me in return. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. That just about brought me undone. Uh, if you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to Literati Glitterati on Triple R, and we have had the absolute pleasure of uh, speaking with Sarah Saleh on the show today. Sarah, um, could you please share with us your social media handles so that so that people can keep abreast of your work and um, you know come and see you when you visit us uh, in Nam. Sure, of course. Thank you. I'd love that. Uh, my Instagram is Insta as in Instagram and stuff, Sarah Nade. So I-N-S-T-A and Sarah, my name, S-A-R-A-N-A-D-E. So Insta Sarah Nade. And my Twitter is Sarah Saleh, S-A-R-A-S-A-L-E-H tweets, Sarah Saleh tweets. Oh, wait, sorry. Is it Twitter? Yeah, I'm not calling it shit. We're not calling it that. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in this week. It's been Literati Glitterati. Stick around. Uh, Queerview Mirror is up next. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.